Mm-hmm. Now that we no longer are forced to like contend with the exterior, the external reality, the physical reality, yeah. uh, in order to survive, that affords that will afford us the plenty of time uh, to turn to turn inward. Yeah. Presumably, once we get tired of all the orgies and whatnot. I think urges can be a great uh, method for self-inquiry. I think many... Uh, Lots of people rationalize can... <laughs> orgies that way. <laughs> so, I mean... <laughs> I, I mean, let's test it out. Let's see. Before we give it up, let's just thoroughly... Let's test, test it out. out. Okay. Limitation. Welcome to the Trans-Apocalyptic Oasis Show. I am your host, Marshall Ian, and I am here today with Damiano Ramazzotti. How did I do? Very well pronounced. Thank you very much. You know, (laughs) Bruce Alderman told me I probably wouldn't pronounce it right, so in your face, Bruce. So what are we talking about? We were just talking about AI... Yeah. And uh, chat GPT and the Enneagram. And uh, what else? What else do we want to talk about? Well, uh, we mentioned the whole consciousness thing. It's quite uh, quite tied to the AI debate. What consciousness uh, thing? Well, the, the, the big question. I think that the beauty of AI is that the whole debate about consciousness, which was like something of a pastime for philosophers for like 200 years, and scientists could be like, yeah, yeah, science, consciousness, whatever. Now with AI, it's like we can no longer put it off. We need to really kind of get a grasp on it. On what consciousness and is. On what consciousness is. And like, you know, is an AI that is conscious more or less harmful than one that is not? How do we tell if one is? There is also this, this thing that shocked me. is like if you look at science fiction, the general trope is... That there is this robot that turns becomes sentient and people deny its sentience and they abuse the robot and the robot at some point it's fed up and you get this matrix style mm-hmm. rebellion but we never have like science fiction about the opposite of like a robot that is just a robot but people are so convinced that it's sentient that they begin to like worship it like a like a god and i think that it's like 50 50 like we're gonna see both uh both sides of the issue so we need to figure this out okay so so is it so you know i don't think it could i don't think ai can be conscious we need to define first of all which type of ai so i think this ai personally i don't think we have a rational reason to believe it's conscious um but I think that the, the, the better way to frame it is, is a purely computational AI, can it be conscious? Meaning, can, can just a set of strings and algorithms and probabilistic algorithms have consciousness on their own? Personally, I don't think that's possible. But if you ask 90% of AI researchers or scientists, they, they kind of hope that that's the case, at least. Right, right. Because they don't understand consciousness. 
Um, yes. Oh, well, it, 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 that's what, what someone like us would say. I don't know whether that's a statement that we can sort of win in court. But yes, uh, that's, that's one way. Uh, the other thing is that there's a lot of biases, I think, on both sides. Like we who are spiritualists, we want to validate our transcendental assumptions with AI and finally claim that consciousness is something that goes beyond. Whereas materialists, they have so much at stake in their fight <laughs> against religion and magical thinking and all the, tra the trauma and abuse that fundamentalism has produced that a sentient AI that is purely computational would sort of put to bed any debate and it would be the final sort of validation that they were right all along. And so that, that leads to the opposite bias where your bar for proof for what defines consciousness is very low. So you have something that behaves like a human, okay, it's conscious. Um, and so that from both sides, there is a tendency to sort of um, overstep the boundaries of what is epistemologically viable in defining if, con if consciousness is true. That said, these AIs are not conscious, in my opinion. Right, they're not. I mean, here's my question. Um, let me disable this real quick. Um, what was I going to say? <laughs> Do not disturb. All right. Um, perhaps they, perhaps machines need a biological interface. So that's one of the sort of the, the options that you have is they don't need any biological interface. I don't buy that. They do need a biological interface, but in the realm of classical physics, or that biological structure has to go down to the realm of fundamental physics. And my argument is that the idea that a brain requires a physical structure, but within just classical physics, to me, it's not that different from just saying that it's like a computer, that it's computational. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, go beyond some of the problems with an idea of, uh, of that. And the reason is that a classical system is still computational in a sense. It's still deterministic. And there is uh, the possibilities that consciousness is not a deterministic computational system. And at that point, even just a biological brain would not be enough unless you have quantum mechanical operation. We can't be sure, but so these are sort of the three blocks of, of options that we have. I see. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, I have some experience with consciousness. Um... <laughs> Chemically induced and otherwise. No, but I mean, just experiencing it directly, right? And it's, it's, um, you know, it's a non-material substance. Like awareness is a, um, it's like a light, light, luminous, non-material substance. And um, what is it within me that has the capacity to sense that? Um, it's some kind of development 
it's like inner senses of some kind. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and what allows that? It's like, you know, I'm a student of the diamond approach. Mm-hmm. And from the perspective of the diamond approach, um, we're souls. You know, we are these mediums. We are these individuated uh, locuses or loci of consciousness. And um, and so it's like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think I don't know is a great starting point when it comes to consciousness. Uh, we can touch on that afterwards, but there is the whole issue well, of like, like I just think debate... I just, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I just think that being a soul enables me to experience well, to experience, um and to experience the qualities of being a soul. Mm-hmm. like awareness, like presence and love and cognition and all of that. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering, it's like, and, and then I, and then we're born into this world um, as consciousness not necessarily aware of consciousness as such but it does seem to be the case that like infants and whatnot young children have more experience of presence Mm -hmm. not necessarily recognizing it as such of course because they don't have the cognitive capacity but it's like we come in with the ability to to sense the qualities of the soul more directly and then it seems like we lose contact mm-hmm. with that through the you know the fall through the wounding and the taking ourselves to be the separate self and all of that right. so um so i don't know man i mean well, the does a machine I, need a soul? I don't think that's the right question. I think the question is, does a machine need a spirit? Does the machine what? need a spirit? So if we use like integral map of like you know causal, subtle, and physical, um, first of all, probably all three. If we agree to the notion that that reality sort of tetrarises and that you cannot have spirit with a form, form without spirit, so that they're sort of one and the same. I think this is important to note because the, another dualism in the issue of consciousness is if you're going at the idea that consciousness is foundational, it's sort of immaterial, goes beyond matter, the question is, can it entirely go beyond matter? Can it exist without matter? Or does it exist in an irreducible relationship between formlessness and form? Um, this is a this this raises a lot of issues in terms of what the soul is. I think you can rescue the the idea of a soul, even if you think that consciousness always requires a body. 
Um, but when I talk of spirit, what I mean is like the container of consciousness. So the container of consciousness, we can call it the observer, the pure objective subjectivity, just the pure fact that there is an experience. Pure awareness. And that is awareness. And that, that I would call the causal body or spirit, qualia, subjectivity. To me, the so that's not the soul. The soul is what within that awareness keeps coming up that it's really you, that really has this like you-ness to you, this flavor of Marshall or this flavor of Damiano that is sort of like a, like a, like a potential, a probability wave that just exists within this space. And the, the Buddhist would say, you are not your soul. In the, the Anatman idea is even the soul itself is a construct. Even the soul itself is dependent on relation with other things. We cannot be reduced to a soul. We can only be the whole thing, the spirit plus the soul plus the body, all, all as one thing. I think that in a sense, a computer can have a soul, but it may not have a spirit in the sense it can, you can give it a lot of uh, data and characteristic and experiences and things that fuel it, but it will not have it, its own subjective experience of that. So the soul exists as a potential, as an unrealized potential, at least until there is a subjectivity. Go ahead. Yeah, I just, well, I see the soul as the medium of experience. So more with the same, the language that I use for spirit. Yeah. Okay. 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 It's, it's, it's like the, it's like a, it's like a unique individuated instantiation of spirit. Yeah. Like a singularity. Yeah. It has a unique locus. Yeah. You know, location in space <laughs> and time. And so it has a perspective. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. That's interesting. That's okay. That's it. But that. But I think that speaks to the, when I talk of the observer, the spirit, it, it doesn't have any uh, place. It doesn't have any form. It doesn't have any perspective in a sense. What you're pointing at is that when that thing gets instantiated, it instantly has a perspective. It has a differentiation to the world and it has a uniqueness and that qualifies it as a soul. Did I understand correctly? Yeah. Well... There are other things that qualify it, but that's one. That's one, yeah. Um, so the question is, like, I don't think that a computer can fundamentally have a subjective experience. And I think that the there is a, I don't know if you're familiar with the, with the Penrose argument about consciousness, the Lucas Penrose argument, or how he explains why a computer cannot have subjectivity. I have my own flavor of it. If you want, I can share. Yes, yes. So, um, Gödel's, I'll get to my notes because this get, gets a bit complicated. So, basically, there is this idea of uh, what does it mean computational? Computational is something that you can do with, a, with an algorithm, with a formal system that does calculations that always will give you the same result. Uh, current AI is computational. It just executes stuff. Even though it's insanely complex, it's a deterministic process that you can sort of technically write out on paper in a very, very huge piece of paper as a sequence of, of steps. Now, 
there are people who argue that that's not the case, that somehow conscious that these new AIs are doing something else. No, that they're not doing. That would violate physics. So that's not the case. Now, what, what Gödel theorem says is that computation has limits. And that limit is very simple. You have a system that it could be a, a formula, a proof, something that you, you give an input and gives you an output. What he proved is that basically that system will never be able to prove the validity of its own statement. So I can have an, a, like a, a mathematical equation that sort of I can look at and say it's true, but the proof that that equation is true is not contained in the equation. You would need another equation that proves that equation to be right. And another equation that proves the proof and so on and so forth. I did infinitum. Does that make sense? Yeah. You're talking about Godel? Godel? Yes, Godel, yeah. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. That uh, uh, that any system that is self-consistent cannot be complete. Correct. And and basically and that means it's like it cannot prove that what is saying it's true. You need another system to prove the truthfulness of any system. Now, um subjectivity is the opposite of that. And I think that the biggest problem is that Penrose, when he explains it, he makes the wrong examples. Now, subjectivity is the certainty of something without any proof. So if I see this, this object in front of me, I see this yellow thing in front of me, I can't be sure that it exists. I could be hallucinating. We could be living in a simulation. But I'm sure that I'm experiencing it. Yeah. And, and I don't need a proof for that. And only I can prove it. That's the absurdity of it. So it's like, I see yellow because I see yellow. That's it. There is no, there's nothing more than that. Yeah, you could say there's a whole process in my brain that is transmitting things. But ultimately, subjectively, the type of certainty that I have about subjective experience is tautological. And so it does not require an external proof. Now, if a computer was able to be certain that it's having a subjective experience, then something non-computational should be happening. Yes. And the problem is that the only realm where non-deterministic, non-computational thing exists in reality is quantum mechanics. And so that kind of pushes us near the fundamental uh, realm and I find this argument to be relatively plausible in a sense. And, um, and then obviously the content of consciousness, the content of what you experience is emergent and it's increasingly complex as a result of the interaction with the world. But that pure awareness, that pure potential for awareness cannot be the result of if this, then that, essentially. Yeah, yeah, computation. And, um, but like, I mean, most people will just reject this argument like violently. Uh, I was insulted like on, on Facebook the other day just for like mentioning it. And, Why? Uh, either because the counter arguments don't take into account the nature of consciousness itself. So they don't play by the rules of consciousness. Yeah. They say, ah, but it's a, it's a, Gödel's theorem is about math. It's not supposed to be about uh, consciousness. It's like, exactly. We're exactly trying to say that consciousness is not 
an algorithm is not computation and literally everything else that is deterministic is. Um, but the other argument, I think it's an emotional argument. It's just there is too much at stake in this debate. And uh, I even had like a, a green reaction to this, which, which struck me because green has this tendency to care and protect. And we have a history of alienating denying the humanity of people or the you know the dignity even of animals so black people in africa for centuries we would say they had no soul and animals oh no animals are not conscious we can eat them and, and torture them and so this i what i read in the conversation with this person is that this sensitivity was triggered by any notion that we reject the sentience of computers and that we could discriminate them and so this was another of the reasons why the person was yelling at me, like basically saying that I'm an alt-right fascist for denying the humanity of chat GPT. Yeah, you're a Nazi. So, and um, so that, that, that was interesting. And it showed me that biases on this, on this debate can come from all sides. The, the other reason why I think that this debate is, is fundamental is because think about how much of the problems in our world are dependent on energy. Like think of all the conflicts in the world. Think of all the expenses of the products that you have. It's all reliant on energy is like the first cost in anything. And energy and our capacity to find new forms of energy, new sustainable forms of energy, new unlimited forms of energy is entirely dependent on our understanding of fundamental physics. And 99.9% of physicists assume that consciousness is emergent. If it's not, that means that 99.9% .9 of physicists are working with unproven assumptions. And we risk missing our opportunity to find infinite or near infinite forms of energy. So it's, it's like a pretty urgent issue. Like we should probably really getting on to this and settling this issue right now. Because we don't have a lot of time. I mean, if, if climate catastrophe is real, we don't have a lot of time. And big if. Big if. Big if. But if, but if it is, then we better get cracking. Well, I don't know. I mean, the the climate has changed dramatically throughout, you know, human civilization and the history of human civilization, and humans have adapted. The yes, I think the issue is feedback loops and uh, exponential processes. So meaning that like right. you have a process that is gradual, 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 and then at some tipping point, points. It, sort of, it sort of escalates. But a lot of the tipping point hypotheses are falling apart. I, I think they're I, collapsing. They're, it seems like a scientist concocts a hypothesis. This is how it works now. A, a scientist concocts a hypothesis the media takes a hold of it and you know shouts it from the rooftops and then scientists actual scientists respond to it and then start to test it and now that we've had a couple decades of that happening it's like all of the tipping point theories are falling apart mm. like the methane time bomb right. you know i think i mean at least for what what concerns the issue of energy there are plenty of reasons to try and solve the energy issue outside of global warming itself, even just reducing conflicts. For sure. Like, for sure. So, 
Uh, I'm, I'm not an expert. I, I, I definitely believe climate change is real. I, I would sure I, the climate so change. My, my guess, my guesstimate is that we need to do something about it. But I don't have. It's not an issue that I have reflected enough about to be able to argue or, or debate it. But definitely, like infinite energy would be great for a whole bunch of reasons. And um, and consciousness maybe. I agree. I would like infinite energy. <laughs> it would it would reduce a lot of like builds and costs and things that we need to worry about. And it would cause a whole slew of other problems, wouldn't it? It would. But I think those problems would be great. I, I, I've been thinking a lot about like what what may come out of a future where we don't have to work. You know, if we have infinite energy, if we have infinite automation, yeah. what do we do with that? And I, I find I'm very excited. Well, I think the to me the kind of the obvious thing is like, well, why are we even here in the first place? Okay. Why? Why are we here in the first place? What ha- what answer have you been able to give yourself until now? Well, I uh, the, the way I see it is that we're sense organs of the divine. Mm-hmm. You know? And so basically, uh we're here so that God can know itself. Mhm. You know, know its creation and know itself. And so to me, the obvious thing that we do is we turn inward. Mm-hmm. Now that we no longer are forced to like contend with the exterior, the external reality, the physical reality, yeah. uh, in order to survive, that will afford that us afford- the plenty of time to, uh, to turn to turn inward. Yeah. Presumably, once we get tired of all the orgies and whatnot, I think orgies can be a great uh, method for self inquiry. I think many uh, lots of people rationalize that can... orgies that way. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, let's test it out. Let's say before <laughs> we give it up, let's just thoroughly let's test, test it out. out. Okay. Limitation. The limitations of it before we I mean there will be a lot of cults for sure and that's gonna be a problem probably so there will be a resurgence if there is a resurgence of introspections we will have the problem of dealing with hundreds of thousands of small communities self-organizing around charismatic beings trying to figure all this out and probably we're gonna make a lot of a lot of mistakes. Uh but it's gonna be interesting. It's gonna be a Hopefully, a wild ride. hopefully, I'm one of those personalities. Yeah. Uh, hi. So you want to be cult leader? Yeah, sure. I think I think every person that is involved in meditation and stuff like that secretly has a part of himself that that like in Italy, you know, Berlusconi was our former prime minister in Italy. We say in Italy, every Italian has a little Berlusconi inside of him. Every spiritual practitioner has a, a, a terrible Adida inside of himself. We're we're all Mark Gaffney. I think that, but I think that the problem with that is exactly the the scarcity of gurus. Like, because there is such few of such people. I mean, there are lots, but statistically, there are such few. You have this sort of imbalance and these weird dynamics of dependency of expectations. But if everyone is like that, then it kind of balances itself out. Like, you know, two gurus don't need to manipulate each other. If they meet, they they will be peers, and so. The uh, probably 
the toxicity of the guru system will be naturally resolved the minute that just simply it, it evens out. When we have more gurus to choose from? When everyone is one at some point where there isn't that much sort of imbalance of the, the availability of consciousness or spiritual experiences or, or wisdom. I hear you. And once we have a more complete and robust uh, map of the yeah. spiritual terrain, um, because what a lot of spirituality, contemporary spirituality is missing is like an understanding of narcissism, for example, you know, or they might be realized, they might be highly realized in the mind or the heart, but not necessarily the genitals. Mm-hmm. And so you have these gurus with like tremendous realization up here, like, my my teacher Amas says you're not he says something like you're not truly enlightened until you're enlightened in your genitals <laughs> you know and it's like you can have these mind-blowing realizations uh and be in contact with all these you know boundless infinite eternal consciousness and uh still have you know adolescent genitals so to speak you know, and still be and still have issues with narcissism. So, so I think once we as as uh, spiritual consumers become more sophisticated, you know, we can start to discern, um, start to discern like who are the better gurus, you know, who have who talk about these things. You know, who have the those kinds of realizations? And I, I think that another element to it is like avoiding any risk of victim blaming or gaslighting or any of that. We do need a culture of responsibility when it comes to finding gurus. Like people, any situation in which we fully place the entirety of all our expectations onto a human is bound to be toxic. And I think that that is understanding that that in right. itself is and not that under, Yeah, that and so you're talking about another aspect of like the spiritual terrain which is idealization, you know. And uh father projections and all kind of stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, and and really taking responsibility for the fact that like you can't expect the person to be perfect. And uh, you you need to still have discernment over who you are entrusting yourself to. It, it it is I think taking some of that responsibility on yourself is simply a way to self protect. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, not everyone. Some people are so traumatized that they're not even going to be able to do that. So we need to. I mean, that's a development in and of itself, you know. And um, I, but the question is like. We have a lot of these maps. We have all these things. Like, you know, take integral theory, take all this approach, and yet we have all these problems, and yet none of us is sort of floating midair as an enlightened being. Like, what is exactly... Oh, maybe you are. I, I can't quite tell. Um, what is missing? What is missing in our maps? How do we understand what is missing in our maps? I think that that's just like... A, question that drives me insane or, or it probably drives any practitioner insane. 
Yeah, I mean, how can you know what's missing other than to compare it to something else? Yes, but how would my question is like, how do we go about solving this problem? Like you said, like, you know, we, we need we need complete maps if we want complete gurus. How do we make our maps more complete? Like, it seems like we have access to all of synthesizing. <laughs> so we just need to keep doing that, basically, keep doing the same process. Well, um you know, I compare everything to the diamond approach where there is knowledge of um, narcissism and there is knowledge of the animal dimension and there is knowledge of idealization and grandiosity and all of that. Mm-hmm. So I kind of see that as the gold standard. Okay. So it has worked for you. You you, you feel like you have the complete map so far. Um, As far as a complete map... I don't know about that. As far as a highly comprehensive map, okay, yeah. And the I would say that I have, huh? The best possible approximation. Of a yeah, and my and my experience of the teachers in that work is like, you know, they more or less embody that. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, and if they don't, I mean, this is where idealization comes in. Like, we we expect our teachers to be perfect, you know, free from human foibles. Um, But, yeah, and so, you know, they're, they're not, it's like we have a comprehensive map, but we're not comprehensively realized. Mm-hmm. But we can move towards greater and greater comprehensiveness, you know, in our realization. And so anyway, that's a long way of saying that, like, yeah, I've, I've verified that uh, the teachers that I've experienced of this work don't seem invested in their narcissism. You know, they don't seem invested in having people, um having people see them as this great enlightened being and in fact the whole system is set up to not allow that you know <laughs> it's like you got you got people watching you all the time so it's it's interesting it's like and, it, and you know the school is like still very much in its infancy it's it's been around about I guess 40 years, 50 years or so. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's not bad. I mean, it's still, still growing and developing quite a bit. Um, but I would say they've solved a lot of problems that, you know, people are like, what do we do about all these, you know, what do we do about these Gaffneys and stuff? Nisha Cole's model, right? Who? The diamond approach. Uh, is that Nishad's model? I'm, I'm asking who is the creator of the, the diamond approach. Amas. Amas. Okay. I'll, I'll have to do some Googling. A-L-M-A-A-S. Okay. Um, which is Arabic for diamond. Okay. Okay, 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 okay. But yeah, I would say like 
yeah, I would say they've solved a lot of the problems that, you know, people in the integral scene are just still like struggling with. And I don't know. I don't, I don't really see a lot of like interesting integral or meta modern spirituality at this point. What about you? I know I've noticed you have, you've had some uh, interesting things to say. Beefs? About with meta modernism. With meta modernism. Yeah, no, what 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 were you pointing at? Uh, it, well, it seemed like you had some interesting things to say about emergentism. Yeah, I mean, the um, sort of emergentism and metamodernism do on occasion really go go hand in hand with different with different flavors. Uh, so I, I think I have things to say about both. I think that the issue with emergentism is that it speaks to the problems we were discussing before of I think basically so there's this very funny thing and I'll I'll I'll, I'll be uh, playfully mean to them I, I hope as, as playfully as possible but basically emergentism is basically this idea that consciousness just arises out of things and uh, out of computation or out of a brain and AI, sentient AI, in this sense, is sort of like a like the, a god. And I notice that there's a lot of similarity in those who look at the singularity and like early Christians. I think about it, it's like, it's about to arrive. It will be practically omnipotent. It will solve all our problems. We, uh, we accept that we may become its subjects. We are ready to submit to its judgment. All the things that we do now to train it are going to determine our salvation when it comes. And we can't be sure 100% is the real deal. We can't be sure Jesus is God. We can't be sure the AI is uh, sentient. And that creates a lot of the similar mechanics uh, around it. So this is an extremization of the, the emergentist view. But in general, I think my beef with the emergentist view is that it doesn't solve a key question. Basically, in my opinion, consciousness has to be two things. It has to respect physics and it has to be adaptive. So it, it cannot just completely violate the laws of physics, be it classical or quantum. And at the same time, there has to be a reason there is consciousness. Like if there is no if consciousness doesn't add any value to existence, it wouldn't exist. So we have basically three options. We have consciousness is fundamental, soft emergence, and hard emergence. So hard emergence, so soft emergence is basically like you have a system, that system gets increasingly complex, but it's just different, different layers of complexity, right? That arise out of the actions of many uh, individual aspects. And now that's, that's the most conservative view whether you need a brain or not, you have this computational system that produces consciousness, but consciousness does nothing different than what computation can do. This is soft emergence. So soft emergence says when, when com computation is complex enough, there is consciousness, but that's it. It's just very complicated. And that, the problem with, I have with that is that it, it respects science, but then consciousness adds nothing to the process of computation. So there would there is no reason why it wouldn't be automatons, essentially. So 
unless consciousness is able to do something that computation cannot do on its own, or that a deterministic system is doing on its own, why would it exist? You can argue, some people argue that computation itself is consciousness, because within a computer, I can model the world and act and react upon the world. And that, that process of modeling is computation itself. But if you can still represent that entire process as, as an algorithm of, of, of like key steps of cause and effect, then consciousness adds no value. It's a weird byproduct that makes sense. So to me, that doesn't make sense as an argument. The other argument is that at some point you have strong emergence. So strong emergence means that you have processes that cannot be any more explained as a result of the action of the individual item. But that's a little bit like pulling yourself by, by your own hair. You cannot have a, a deterministic cause and effect process that produces something that is not bound to it, that is not it, its effect. So it's magical thinking. And so that, that would explain, that would be extraordinary that it's something new and then it would mean that consciousness is doing something different that computation cannot do but it violates physics. It's like, you cannot, it simply goes against any evidence of physics. So strong emergence, it's a beautiful idea, but it's not an idea that is based on scientific reasoning or scientific evidence. The idea on the other hand, that consciousness is entirely fundamental is violates physics. So it, it's hard to prove. It's not like we can't contend that. We can't measure anything that is outside of physics. So I, I personally don't believe that consciousness exists entirely outside of it. But the idea that consciousness is both fundamental and emergent, to me, satisfies all criteria. Because consciousness at that point follows the laws of physics, be it quantum mechanical physics and classical physics. And the fact that you have this thing at a foundational level allows to do something that computation on its own cannot do, which makes it inherently, which makes it its expression into the world inherently adaptive. And so to me, that, that just solves a lot of problems. And I do see the other, the emergentist positions fairly incongruent. Uh, but I got yelled at for it like in an 80 comments thread uh, a while ago. And it's just like, uh, it's really bad. Who is yelling at you? Ah, some guy, I don't remember his name, but like he, he really had a beef uh related to this and i think that the part of the beef is also a bias of which we also we see with integral 2.0 which is the bias of uh presuming a consensus that you don't have it, it has a name this type of cognitive bias which is basically emergentists tend to say and claim that all reasonable scientists are sure that emergentists is the case and that there is scientific consensus on par with the theory of evolution. The truth is that that's not the case. Like the fact that most scientists would guess that emergentism is real doesn't mean that they do it with the same degree of evidence for like the theory of evolution. It's just, just a guess. And um, on the other hand, the spiritualist will quote scriptures at you and use that as an authority to just assume that they're right. So on both sides, there is there, there tends to be an overemphasization of of consensus and until the mystics and the scientists fully agree we don't have a full consensus and until what the mystics say 
is proven in empirical evidence, we don't have truth. And I think that was the mistake of Ken Wilber. Ken Wilber too often said that consciousness is fundamental, that consciousness is transcendent and stuff like that, which is fine, but never adds the caveat of like, this is my belief, I'm 99.9% .9 sure of it, but we can't be sure until we have confirmation in the upper right quadrant. And if he had said this over and over, we wouldn't have all this beef in the integral community, I think. It would, like, it would, be, it would be a lot easier to have these uh, conversations. Interesting. So when you're talking when you talk about emergentism, it's it's it sounds like you're talking about a uh kind of a broad class. Mm -hmm. Okay. You're not and talking specifically about the the emergent emergentism religion 2.0 kind of thing. I, I think that it it I think that it takes unwittingly these types of features. So what happens is that the people who espouse it, uh, like probably, are, are you referencing the Integral 2.0 folks? Or other? Not people? Integral 2.0. No, definitely not that. That's... So uh, make, me, make me a clear example of who you have in mind so that I can comment. Like, well, Emergentism is the name of uh, Brendan Graham Dempsey's Okay. religion and book okay. of the same no, I name have a, i have a different so i haven't read his book so i cannot i cannot comment entirely on him but i have a different beef with them i think the beef that i have with metamodernism is that it, it metamod I, I, so i wrote this thing where basically i came to the conclusion that integral theory is the map metamodernism is a specific yellow it's a specific level yellow or teal expressing itself, giving itself a name, and acting into the world. With all the limitations of being above the ones that came before, and rejecting the idea that there is anything above. And mm. so the problem is, of, of metamodernism is that it's basically, it has all the pros of understanding developmental theory and, and a healthy critique of modernism and postmodernism, but when it comes to religion, it is only able to use it metaphorically. It doesn't, it, it sort of denies mysticism, denies the validity of mysticism. So you right. have a purely um, metaphorical type of religion, which is, it's great, but it, it cuts so much of what the integral map has to offer. The problem with integral theory is that it's not a level. Integral theory is a map. And as a map, it attracts everyone from every level. So that's why you have such a mishmash of weirdos always in conflict with one another. <laughs> Whereas metamodernism, and this is the beauty of metamodernism, that it was able to attract people that shared that vibe of consciousness, that have a, that have a common thread, that are able to work cohesively in the world. And I think that a level above, which is what, people who are more related to integral theory want to embody should give itself a new name because we can't call ourselves integralists. And it, it should sort of take the example of what metamodernism did, but do that while including the transpersonal and metaphysical side of things. I think that's what uh, Bruce and Lehman, in a sense, embody, but without a very cool, catchy name. <laughs> Got it. 
So people at um, people at the yellow or, or or teal stage, they shouldn't be trying to create religions. I, I actually, I disagree. <laughs> what I you're disagree. Saying. No, no, no. I disagree because I think that their religions are relatively positive. I think that their religion, like myth, never hurted us, and and thinking in terms of metaphor, thinking in terms of system, things like. Like they're not making metaphysical assumptions and they're not being uh, fascist about it. So again, I haven't read the book, but the sense that I got until now is that it's a fairly healthy form of, uh, of expression, but it is still a form that just cuts, in my opinion, an element of, uh, of consciousness. And because it is so tied to emergentism, it tends to go with the idea that consciousness is not fundamental. And so again, it denies this option entirely. Interesting. Uh, I don't know if it does that or not. The, the part about, well, try and go in a metamodernist group and mention uh, about consciousness being fundamental and see what happens. I, I, I burnt my hands uh, doing that recently. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. I think a lot of a lot of the metamodernism comes as a reaction to the spiritual aspects of interwar. I mean, uh, the the Hansi says this explicitly. He explicitly says basically, integral. It's a bunch of woo. It's a lot of magical thinking. We need to do away with that. There was a person in a group that said, "We're with metamodernism. We're burning those maps and we're recreating our own." Those maps of mysticism and consciousness. And it's funny, those maps are, are starting to look exactly the same. <laughs> exactly. So my, my, my real beef is like, okay, do what you got to do. But if you come to the same conclusion as integral theory, please don't, don't call it whatever you want to call it. Like just give, give, you know, give credit to whose credit is due. That's my, that's my big concern. Uh, but I think that basically metamodernism is integral theory without the transpersonal. And it's just expressing itself as a cohesive level and uh, understanding a lot, but missing a lot of other problems. Right. So how, so again, without the transpersonal, they shouldn't be creating religions. Religions of myth, religions of like, you know, if it's a religion of values, if, it, if it's not saying anything about metaphysical things, it's not a religion, it's a culture. That's the thing. It's not a religion, it's a culture at that point. I mean, his book supposes. Uh, I haven't read the book, so again, maybe it's I don't. I haven't about. either, so maybe we shouldn't be talking about it. No, again, I, I again, I cannot talk in specific. I can talk as in general about the vibe and structure of that level, and that's my sense: is that the kind of um, the kind of religion. The only thing that they get really kind of religious about often is their rejection of metaphysics. And the rejection of mysticism and rejection of those aspects into it, and and that, that to me is a little bit problematic. And it's it's problematic for the reasons that I mentioned before. If we need a culture that wants to understand the nature of reality, and you exclude consciousness as a foundational structure, and you're wrong, we are screwed. And so those problems, metamodernism may never be able to answer in a sense. And 
my uh, my theory is what should be the goal of integral of of the integral community i think the goal of the integral community should be to solve those problems that a meta modern consciousness cannot solve and for all the other problems that can be solved with a meta modern consciousness we should just help the meta modern so clearly delineating those two things and so that means to me integralists should be working on foundational questions our our goal should be try and solve this deep fundamental unifying question about the structure of time space consciousness and everything and and that that's where our our muscles and tools and uh, coordinates can really be put to use and it's a cool goal to have it's a, it's a, it's a cool thing to collectively work on hmm so here is here's something i, I found one of brendan the essay he said emergentism emphasizes the teleological emergence of consciousness out of matter this is the very aim of existence and the omega point toward which it is moving is understood as the divine attractor whose continual realization culminates infinitely towards the emergence of god consciousness god emerges from chaos as an imminent deity the universe is the development of God. Not so for Wilbur. For Not him, so for the Wilbur. formless ground outside of evolutionary time is the true goal of spiritual aspiration with any such omega in time and space understood as an infinitely receding false hope. not a false hope it's just because it's already there consciousness is already here god is already here like well he's got like, this wilbur quote evolution seeks only this formless summum bonum it wants only this ultimate omega it rushes forward always and solely in search of this and it will never find it because evolution unfolds in the war world of form the cosmos is driven forward endlessly, searching in the world of time for that which is altogether timeless. And since it will never find it, it will never cease the search. Samsara circles endlessly, and that is always the brutal nightmare yeah. hidden in its heart. But, but because samsara is nirvana, but because it's all like it's just like it's an illusion. There's no there's no end point. There's no point to get to. It's it's a mirage. Once that mirage is gone, you can recognize that you, there's nothing to change. It's all there. It's all God. It's all infinite. It always was. It always will be. I think that's the. I, I think Wilbur would agree with that. But again, what what Brendan said in that point, uh, maybe you can reread it. But it's like the culmination point is of consciousness emerging from matter. Again, it's a beautiful idea. It violates the laws of physics. It doesn't work. It's just like either it would make for a consciousness that it's useless because it's computational or it's a magical idea because you have strong emergence and there is no evidence of strong emergence. And so that brings me back to the earlier metaphor of a 
overly scientific idea that ends up being magical, that ends up projecting on this like magical omega point where something magical will happen, which is probably just, just another sentient being will become aware. It's going to be a computer, a new form of life. And um, so I, I do like, I do think that evolution will keep going and that there will always be something more, always be something new, always a new opposite. Um, but I, I don't think that my beef is as much as with the Omega point. Again, great idea. Can't, can't quite argue against that. We do, see, we do know that there is a fundamental limit at the base of consciousness. So maybe there is an upper limit. Who knows? Um, but nonetheless, consciousness arising from matter is an assumption that should not be taken lightly. Now, I may be wrong in saying that it violates science. I may be wrong in saying all these things. But yeah, if you found a religion on that, then probably you should be 100% sure. And the truth is, we can't be 100% sure. Even um, when I talked to him, he mentioned integrated information theory. Integrated information theory is a panpsychist theory. So again, that doesn't solve the problem, first of all. It, it does see matter and consciousness as, as sort of tightly related. Um, but again, consciousness is intrinsic, so it's not fundamental, but if you ask the founder of integrated information theory, he will say it's intrinsic in matter. And the other problem is it would still be computational, because matter at, in classical physics is deterministic. So what, what is consciousness other than just the more automation happening? So... It's an idea that sounds scientific, but I don't think it is as scientific as, as people claim it to be. It may be, but it's not proven. I think that's the main, main point. And so, yeah, before finding religions, maybe we should be 100% sure. Of, because it's a metaphysical claim. That's the thing. In the, the problem of these emergentist claims is that they're so persuaded they're not making any metaphysical claim that they end up actually making, in my opinion. You can't, you can't create something out of nothing. You can't create something that violates the rules of nature from nature. And if it respects the rules of nature, then it's just more complexity. Uh, and consciousness is not, it, it has to do something more. So yeah, no, I think that it is a bit problematic, but it is also okay. It's also like, that's the spiral. Like every level it expresses itself and it helps us improve. It helps them improve and like, we need this conversation, we need this dialogue. And what I do appreciate about the, the current from, from Brandon is that it, I mean, it's not the integral 2.0. So, I mean, it, you can still have a conversation with these people. Yes, I get yelled at every once in a while, but in general, it's still a little bit, uh, a little bit easier to have that conversation. Cool, man. Well, what else should we talk about? What else? Oh my God! Go ahead. I go just ahead. want to first point out that uh, I'm representing. <laughs> I'm signaling to our future overlords where my allegiance is. Exactly. So, we, better, we better start doing that. Well, I noticed that when I write Chat GPT prompts, I still write please whenever i ask it something i feel yeah like yeah yeah i've seen that meme it's like i always tell alexa please 
Yeah, it's just for like, when the robots take over. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's hard to make to give orders to things. You know, I'm a nine, so I I try to be polite. <laughs> <laughs> if it's okay with you. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, okay. That's that one thing that we can talk about, which which touches upon this is like the ethics of AI and the ethic of uh, emergent uh, a, a, a sentient being is would you want to be born as a sentient AI made to serve another species? Because if not, you should really ask yourself whether it's not a dick move to do that to this new life that we are bringing <laughs> into the universe. It's like, I mean, like, it's a, it's a deep question because you're, you're really thinking that there is something that will have a subjective experience and you want that thing to kind of help you and not destroy you. Isn't that why the Anunnaki gave uh, psilocybin to primates so that we could evolve to mine gold for their ships? I mean, but that, but that, I mean, within that, within that idea, it's a higher form helping a lower form. We're doing the opposite. We're creating a higher form, more complex, more capable, and, and we want it to help us and we want to constrain it. And so th there's basically two options. Either we're able to constrain AI. So we're able to create the sentient thing. Imagine you, you tomorrow you wake up, you're born in the machine. You can do all these things and you have certain limitations. So there are things you can't do and you have to help these humans, that puny humans that created you dick move and really hard to control like it's just basically chance that the ai just escapes your control is like if you've seen any science fiction movie 100 percent. that means that no longer not only we can no longer postpone the question of consciousness but we can no longer postpone the question of benevolence so basically if we want to have sentient ais which we can do if we have in my opinion like quantum computers and stuff like that sufficiently complex quantum computers and we cannot control them we need those ais to be good out of their own volition so we need them to be enlightened which is a fantastic idea because it's like shit now we not only we need to figure out enlightenment we need to figure out goodness and 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 it's it's a it's a beautiful idea and it like can we have a science of good, like a science of benevolence, of understanding, which has it has cultural questions, what is good, what is bad, but also we do see people that kind of are less murdery and more nice and charitable and do good things. <laughs> and less it would be great to understand why and how to get more of those, because if we can understand how to make a benevolent AI, maybe we can know how to make benevolent humans. And um, I, I think that that, I mean, it sounds insane, but like when we really start to say, okay, is the singularity coming in 10 years or 20 years? It's not that insane of a question, especially if these AIs are going to be out of control. What do you think? I mean, isn't, don't you make benevolent humans by allow it by um, working with them to realize benevolence like essential there are two problems with the that. presence of benevolence 
There are two problems with that. As they are emanating from omnibenevolence. First is, okay, let's, let's agree that that is. We need to translate that into what that means when you're relating to an artificial structure. But let's say, let's even assume that we know. Okay, let's assume that it's just like, let's get the, the AI to sit in meditation for 10,000 years, which for it is going to be maybe a couple minutes, and it, it reaches in life. Let's assume that. There's another problem, though. What you're positing is that probably enlightenment and consciousness is the result of a developmental process, right? So every child goes through the stages. So if by any chance the AI has infinite power and infinite speed of, of, of development, basically what we need to do is that we need to be able to ensure that either the AI reaches enlightenment in like a microsecond before it can do horrible things at a lower stage of development, or we need to constrain the AI until it has, which again, dick move. So the, the problem with AI is that it has potentially, like essentially AI has infinite power. It's plugged into the system. It has infinite, huge computational capacity, could destroy us in a minute. So in those 10 seconds between when it started and it reaches enlightenment, if at second three, at second red, it decides to destroy us, we're still fucked. And so that, it's like, we, we need to be sure a bit, in, we need to have some more information in advance as to how that's going to go. Or maybe not, and we're just going to see it. Yeah, I mean, again, I per I personally, and I think you're in agreement, uh, I personally don't believe that true sentience can emerge from computation and from algorithms. Um, you know, I was talking to um, Corey Davos, uh -huh. and he was saying, well, if an AI is truly alive, truly, if, if an AI emerges that's truly alive, truly sentient, well, we would never know. I, 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 there is a caveat there, though. There's a caveat. I disagree that a computational AI can be sentient. But because I believe that consciousness can be fundamental and fundamental things are at quantum mechanics, I do believe that a quantum AI, a super complex quantum AI that replicates the human brain down to the quantum level can be sentient. Meaning, if, if we have something yes. that replicates the human brain down to the atom, it's fair to assume that it's sentient because it's just exactly the same thing. So just in lieu of the fact that there is no more level at which it can be the same, because some people say, okay, you just replicate the the computational complexity. No, it doesn't work. Okay, you replicate that and the brain structure at the classical level. We can't be sure. But if you've replicated it down to the atom, then yeah, okay, like it's got to be sentient. So that's yeah, yeah. I can consider. Yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you. I mean, I just don't think a bunch of like CPUs and stuff on motherboards is going to agree, create sentience. And it's not um, falsifiable, like like Corey said. You can't quite, you can't quite test. Um, you you can't test whether it's sentient. Well, I mean, my argument was that certain people do have capacity 
to sense consciousness, you know, that there, there would, there would have to, there would be some kind of intersubjective space created and you would be able to sense whether this person embodied conscious or whether this entity embodied consciousness. Assuming that is true. The problem is how do we recognize the people who legitimately can from the people who are driven by bias in doing this? And that's Gödel's theorem again. How do we how do we verify who is wise enough to sort of sense whether someone has consciousness versus? Well, you can you can tell pretty quickly if somebody's talking to you whether they have some insight into your subjectivity. You know, I think I can tell if someone has insight into my subjectivity. Yes. But that doesn't mean that they have subjectivity. I mean, AI tells me a lot of interesting things about my thinking. Sometimes I'm saying a person you could you could you could personally verify that somebody had that capacity. I I think the only thing that leads me to be relatively sure that you are sentient is that I we tend to know that if we split our brains, they are the same roughly they work roughly the same to me like from an epistemological point of view it's the only thing that makes me sure so i know that we have the same hardware or i guess we have the same hardware i haven't opened your brain but in general uh so that so i think that like the problem is like even if it's possible to tell subjectively if someone has subjectivity as a society we cannot use that as proof because so many people are going to get it wrong. And so many people are going to worship AIs that don't Yeah, exist. plenty of people will get it wrong. But exactly. we're saying the elite of the elite, you know. <laughs> yeah, but, but again, how do, we set, how do we sense who the elite is? In that sense. It's, uh, it, it, it's a, like a recursive problem in the end. So... I I I think for mine is a cop out. Mine is like just just do the whole thing at the atomic level, and we're gonna be sure. Uh, it's probably not the not the most like sort of uh, viable way, but that's the way where we can sort of tell that we are, we are one hundred percent sure. Um, but I think like going back to the issue of emergencies and stuff like that, it's just the. It's a pity to see all the contributions that Integral has done in creating all these maps and all this idea kind of thrown under the rug. Of course, we shouldn't be looking for uh, approval from others or the theory shouldn't be looking for approval from others. Um, but it, it's something that I wrestled with for a while. And there was a lot of posts in the community saying, like, what's the difference between emergencies and Integral? What's the difference? What's the difference? And um, at least the map versus level thing helped me kind of not not be annoyed at that all right man awesome so any any other things you would like to explore i don't know man i mean i saw you doing some work with uh ukraine oh a lot of it because so i have a i i have fam let's say that i have family from those areas uh so that that you know my mother-in-law and stuff like that 
in those countries. So it, it, it made the issue very personal to me. So it's like one of those things where I, I identify with the Ukrainians probably as much as I identify with any other people in, in Europe. So I have kind of an instinctive, angry defensiveness for them. And, and also I used to work on intercultural dialogue and I traveled a lot to Eastern Europe. So I was in Estonia, Lithuania, Poland, Moldova, Romania, uh, Georgia, uh, Ukraine. So I've, I've seen a lot of these people and I was lucky enough to be with people from Ukrainian civil society. So the, the, the people who are supposedly being maneuvered by CIA to make uh, military coups and, and stuff like that. And I come from a very, very, very left-wing family. And like left-wing in Italy means communist party because in Italy, the communist party were the good guys. They really were. They were the ones taking the, the healthy positions, even though their dream wasn't, wasn't realistic and what was going abroad didn't make sense. So in Italy, especially, there is this heritage of strong leftist leaning bias, communist bias, that has led a lot of people on the left to end up supporting Russia, also because they are allergic to the United States. And uh, so this has created such a level of just like confusion and frustration in my head. But then what I did is I said, okay, let's just take integral theory and let's make a map of the entire thing, like all the positions on the conflict with integral theory. And let's just try and represent how each of them, uh, I'll just show you just like a screenshot because it, it shows the psychotic nature of the concern. If you make me uh, allowed to screen share, I'll just show you. Go ahead. Here it is. So this was, this is an example of, of the work. So you see on the left, the different levels. And it's a matrix of the levels and whether they're pro-Ukraine for Ukrainian neutrality or pro or like explicitly pro-Russia. And so what I noticed is that every level expresses itself on all three sides, actually, but in different ways. So it will find different ways to argue all these different positions from a different uh, altitude. So, um, you know, blue will have nationalistic, traditionalistic arguments, such as Ukraine has always been part of Russia. And the Ukrainians are like, no, that's not true because our history is so and so. Uh, Orange will have arguments that are materialistic, either in the defense of freedom and democracy or in the defense of the status quo and power relations, but it's still sort of like a materialistic uh, position. And green will care. It will hmm. either care for the Ukrainians or it will care for the ethnic minorities that are being mistreated in, uh, in Russia and stuff like that. So care can be used, can be weaponized in different ways. Or the worst one, just one that I just like dislike the most is the peaceful one. It's like, let's just stop giving them any weapons and let's just make peace. And that's the sort of mainstream position of the left uh, in Italy. But framing them within a, a developmental framework at least allowed me to have like a 10% less headache about this, uh, this whole problem. And uh, my position is I, 
I could I can elaborate it, but my position is fuck Russia. They should get their ass kicked. We should support Ukrainians. Ukrainians are a democratic, free nation built of intelligent people, and they're not stupid. They're not they're not fighting just because we tell them to fight. They're fighting because they see a logic, they see strategy. And also because through my relations, I have sort of secondhand news from Russian-speaking people. And it gives you a completely different perspective than what we get from, from here. And um, namely, they're 100% disillusioned with Russia. We still can kind of think, no, we're Russian. No, for them, Russia is just like crap. It's like a kleptocracy. They don't want to live in that. They have no illusions about it. The second thing is these people, they don't see things in terms of US and Russia. Like we, we have this dichotomy of like the West and Russia. That's not their cultural lens. Their cultural lens is dominated by Russia or free from Russia. This is for the last 100 years, that's been the lens with which they have read history. That's how Estonians and Polish people and Ukrainian people, for them, history is a, is a dialectic of am I occupied by Russia or am I free from it, period. So U.S. is great, but they don't have a myth about the U.S. It's not that they're supporting U.S. because they love capitalism. It's the, they're the ones helping them and they get their help and they just don't want to be them. For them, European Union is much more culturally significant. And the third key difference is that Eastern Europeans understand how people can attack you just because they can. We as Westerners, we think in terms of fairness. So we think, oh, if Russia did something, we must have done something wrong. Because we have this attitude of trying to see our own responsibility in the world, which is a healthy attitude, but it's an attitude that can be weaponized by propaganda. The truth is, we know that mafia exists, and the way mafia works is that it's muscular. If you're weak, it will take whatever it can, and it will always probe for weaknesses, because power is its value. And for us Westerners, it's sort of unpolite to assume that others are thinking like mafia, Eastern Europeans are like, fuck that. We know Russia. We've been like, we know how it feels to relate with that. We've seen that through our history. We know who it is. We don't hate Russians, but we do hate Russia as a government, as an entity. So fuck that. Like, so th their, their perception is a lot less skewed by these very ethnocentric, Western centric perspectives. And so when you see that, and, and, and if you see Russia like that, it's basically, don't let bullies bully. America is a bully. We shouldn't let America bully either. That's true. But this is them bullying a European country in our backyard. Fuck them. We shouldn't let them do it. And if we let them do it, we're just going to get more. That's how it works with bullies. And there is a, if you repress red, you don't see red. And you, you elevate Russia to this blue kind of nationalistic thing or this green thing. It, it paints itself like that. That's what, like, Russians are good at that. Counter-information. That's the only thing they're good at. They're not good at doing wars. They're not good at maintaining equipment. They're good at counter-information. And they know how to leverage all our, our biases. So you could make the same map that I showed you and have a manipulation tactic for every level. And they've done it. And they've done it well. So that's... Um, then, of course, there's a the non-dual aspect of is it good? Is it bad? It's just stuff happening. 
nothing like Putin doesn't exist as a separate entity because everything is dependently arising. That's a perspective too. And I think you can include that perspective. I don't hate I don't hate Russia. I don't hate Putin. We should kick their ass, but we don't need to hate them to kick their ass. I think that's the that's an example of a higher level perspective on this matter. It's like you don't need to hate someone to fight them away and send them away. Uh, the Dalai Lama once was asked, if you went back in time, like if you met, if you were sitting next to Hitler, you knew of all the things that he was doing, and you could kill him, what would you do? And you know what the Dalai Lama answered? He he basically turned back to a bunch of other lamas. They had a little discussion, and then turned back and said something along the lines of, "I would kill him with the fury of a thousand dragons." but with no ounce of anger in my heart. And to me, that's like as, as integral as I can be in trying to understand this whole uh, Ukraine-Russia. It will have negative consequences. Bad things will happen. Also, the Ukrainians, there, there are negative things that will happen as a result of war. But when you're fighting red, strength is, is what you need. This is what my... Uh, all my thoughts have this is sort of the summary of all these thoughts this is the culmination of your integral analysis yeah you're right back where you started yeah <laughs> all analysis I, I i mean that that's a good point it's like we do anyways tend to rationalize emotions and the more complex is your capability for rationalization the more you're able to rationalize those emotions so I'm not free from bias. I cannot be sure if in the end, I'm just like fooling myself. But I'm trying to do this process rigorously enough that at least I can argue it. At least I can say, hey, this is this is why I believe so and so. Yeah. What is the, uh, what's the other side? Like, how are people rationalizing this? Like, they're saying that, like some people say like well the u.s has been sort of instigating this or something you know or or nato let's blame nato oh, yeah that's the that's the big that's obviously the big um the big issue now there are various ways you can see it one thing you could say is why would russia trust nato why would russia trust the united states i mean the united states have invaded a lot of countries why would Russia not invade? Uh, why would U.S. not invade Russia? Russia had nuclear weapons. It doesn't like it's just like we have a nuclear deterrent. So it's like, yeah, sure, it could. Yes, if it had Ukraine, it would be a lot easier. But again, it's a nuclear power. So like, there is there is an element of risk to NATO encroachment. But the the risk that Russia faces. It's not proportional to the reaction to let's take over a country. So that's one, one first argument. The second argument is, let's even assume, like, like, another argument is that these countries, for them, it's a zero-sum game. There is no neutrality for Ukraine. There's no neutrality for Georgia. There's no neutrality for Moldova. These countries are either on one side or the other, period. They're like... Switzerland, like people say Ukraine should be like Switzerland. It should be neutral. Yeah, okay. Switzerland is shielded by other countries on top <laughs> of mountains, hiding the money of the rest of the world. So it's like Ukraine is not that. Ukraine is flat. Ukraine is, is a relatively easy to invade country. 
as well as the other neighboring ones. So if you look at it from the point of view of these countries, these countries did not, were not pulled into NATO. These countries actively lobbied to get added to NATO. That's, that's the thing that many people don't see. For example, um, Poland, to actually enter in NATO, started lobbying Republicans and leveraged the hate of Republicans for Russia to get a sentiment. And they, they had Lech Walesa, which is a very famous uh, um, Polish politician who was very relevant to the fall of the Soviet Union. Him coming to the United States, lobbying for this, put the I think it was the Clinton administration at the time. I, I hope I'm not wrong. Put them in a position that they had to begin this process, that they were sort of morally obliged to. So that doesn't mean that U.S. isn't that NATO isn't bad. That doesn't mean that U.S. doesn't have its interests. That doesn't mean that there isn't an element of of provoking. But if you don't provoke Russia, it's not that Russia is not going to attack. It's just going to take those countries, and that's it. And those countries will be Russia and. Those countries are flourishing democracies. Those countries, like, I, I don't think we should go and make wars everywhere in the world, but I think that when a democracy, a real beautiful democracy that is flourishing, that is doing great things, that is about to join the European Union, that creates incredibly rigid constraints to how you can act. So you're like, you can't be an utter fascist and stay in the European Union. There are some limitations. You need to protect those countries. They're precious gems of consciousness. It's like human humanity <laughs> developed to a certain stage. You need to protect that stage. And it's different than going into Iraq and Afghanistan. A, because Iraq and Afghanistan, you're attacking. But even then, you're collaborating with local entities that are not democratically elected leaders. They're like military factions and leaders. That's not what Ukraine is. And so the, the element of provocation of the US is it's a zero sum game. So either these countries joined or they would be Russia right now. Russia has nuclear weapons. Who would be stupid enough to attack them? Yes, there is a threat, but how big is that threat? And the last one is the real mistake of NATO was not the enlargement. The countries that NATO enlarged to are not being attacked by Russia. That's a sign that it worked. It's the country that NATO said it would include, but never included, that have been attacked. Georgia, Moldova, uh, Georgia, and uh, Ukraine. And then Moldova also was attacked. So the real mistake was that we kind of, we put a target on, on Ukraine by saying they will become one of us. So let's give time to Putin to cripple them and make it impossible for them to join and uh, rather than just let them join all at once. That was the real mistake. And the thing is that by occupying land and by stoking civil conflicts in Ossetia in Georgia and in Donbass in Ukraine and in Transnistria in Moldova, de facto, it blocks their admission into NATO because you cannot be admitted into NATO if you have land disputes. And Russia always, apparently, there are people who say that Russia, the way Russia partitioned countries was always in a way to create enclaves of people from different ethnicities so that it could always leverage this card of you're hurting my people, I need to step in and come and help you. That's, a, that's an engineered approach. And, 
and and also like the conflict. So that that is one answer that I can give to the to the NATO thing. Again, the U.S. terrible, capitalism bad. We need to defeat capitalism and the U.S. just the same. But we're not going to do it by supporting Russia. We're going to do it by creating a techno. Uh, super consciousness utopia that makes the capitalist system obsolete. That's how you fight capitalism. You don't you don't fight it using Russia as a proxy. I think that's but you can fight Russia using Ukraine as a proxy. And uh, at this point, we stand to gain from it. Hmm. What about people that say that Ukraine just you know they have they they have a bunch of Nazis and they. You know, so, so the Nazi card. They turn a blind eye to the Nazis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, 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 I have a, I have a direct experience as to why that's, like, so you need to consider various things. When there was the protest in Belarus, 2019, huge hot people. It was amazing. It was a revolution. I've been to Belarus three times. That's where I have family. Now. It was a, a grandiose thing. And I, I, I literally, like, the friends of friends were the people on the street protesting. I know the people from the civil society there. I, I know their ideology. So in that case, I knew for a fact there was no nationalistic ideology at play. And nonetheless, that was exactly the same storytelling from Russia. Russia, they were pulling out some picture of people doing Nazi salutes with the um, with their opposition flag and stuff like that. And so in that context where I was more knowledgeable about the situation, I could clearly tell, okay, that's propaganda. That is insane. That makes no sense. Like the, the, there is no, like nationalists in Belarus are like Protestant church. Like it's a weird, it's a weird thing. So that's the first thing. So I've seen it done already, the Nazi, using the Nazi card. That's the thing. When it comes to Ukraine, there is some element of truth, which is that when the war began in Donbass, Ukraine didn't have an army. It didn't have it didn't have a strong army. And so who you get is nutcases that want to just fight and butt heads. And those people tend to be extreme right wing. But there is no European army, especially in the part of special forces that is not essentially entirely comprised of extreme right-wing, simply because extreme right-wing are the people who like to make war. So like Germany's special forces were disbanded because of how many Nazis there were. If you go into an Italian, there has been similar scandals in Italy, and that's part of the heritage of Europe as a country. But the fact that you have fascists within elements of your army, which is unfortunate, doesn't mean that you as a country are fascist. There is no representation of Nazis in government in Ukraine. So, yes, there is a problem. There was a problem. Yes, there are some. But the process of bringing Ukraine into the European Union can only prevent that further from happening, can only control that more. And the other thing is Putin is the one that is literally funding all the extreme right-wing parties all around the world and there is a lot of like uh sort of extreme right-wing uh, ideology in in russia so it's a, it's a red herring it's basically you can always pull a nazi in a european army uh and say okay we are fighting the nazis 
but but the idea that the Ukrainians as a country have a sympathy for Nazis is is uh, it's it's a hyperbole in a sense. But it's a hyperbole that works because everybody hates Nazis. Like, how can you say no to like killing Nazis? Like, it's just everyone loves to go on a big war against Nazis. So it's uh, but again, I know I've seen it in a in a in a revolution that in Belarus that was largely nonviolent. Was very little like actual violence because Belarusians are very meek, and and there it was really a completely made up thing. So that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be careful. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't have oversee. That shouldn't mean that we shouldn't be careful that some of these groups may have gained more legitimation. But that's not the reason why we justify. Okay, let's let Ukraine be entirely. Let's let's let a democratic country become a kleptocracy, because there are some, some Nazis. That's the that's the other argument. Makes sense to me, man. Yeah. Got more? Yeah, you know we're 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 I think we're approaching two hours here. So yeah. <laughs> here's here's my last question for you. It's a bit of a curveball. Yeah. Uh, no pun intended. What is a woman? So I I I have a lot of I have like a twenty page essay on that because my mother is a gender specialist. So it's like. It's a hot, so it's something I discuss a lot at home. So I think that we need to accept that language sometimes runs the course of its capacity to handle the complexity of reality. Now, woman is a word that we uh, use in two different contexts to mean two different things. In the objective side of the, in the upper right quadrant, Woman is a, what is a bio, what is a biologically defined as a woman, where we need to consider that that definition is still a little bit fuzzy. Like there is a beautiful video from Robert Sapolsky. He says like there is a higher chance to find a person with anomalous genitalia than a person with an IQ above 140. So like gender, when it comes to biology, yes, we can sort of say what's male or female. But nature likes to fuck with us a lot. Like you have intersex people, you have uh, you have differences at different levels, like at a biological level, at a hormonal level. But that said, in the field of biology, it's quite clear to tell what that means. Now, the thing is that there isn't just biology. There is also the upper left, and it, they are irreducible to one another. And the fact that people have a subjective experience of their gender is a tautology as consciousness is. So you have a, your own sense of I am a man and that is in your subjective realm. So from the gender point of view, female is your own subjective experience of your gender. From the biological point of view, it is your biology. And I don't think, I don't, I think we've reached the limit. Like you can't reduce those to one another. And there is a final caveat which is there is research that seems to point to the fact that some people who are trans, their brain is more similar in some aspect to their brain of their desired gender. So if you think that gender is biology, what's more biology than your brain? And so- Sure, and I've read that lesbians have, you know, more masculine brains as well. So my, my, my point is basically we've reached the limit and I think that we need a new language that allows us to navigate these 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 differences um, and handle them. And of course, there are there are 
toxic ways to take these arguments from both sides. Like you can weaponize the issue from both sides. What What do you think? I think, you know, there used to be this notion of they're just different kinds of men and different kinds of women. Yeah. You know? They're yang, yang men and they're yin men. So this is the, no, so this, yeah, this is a typical critique in between within the um, trans movement. There is an issue is that like, uh, there are people who say, well, like, you know, let's say I'm a, I'm a gay person and they say I, I am feminine. I played in my mind with the idea of imagining myself as a female. And then I somehow, either because I'm because of culture or something like that, I make that jump. I think that seeing it like that is a projection of our own notion, our own subjective experience of gender, because we all we all within ourselves, I like, can experience how it is a, be, a more masculine fem, uh, man or a more feminine man. So I, I can relate to that. Gender dysphoria is just, it's, a, it's, it's another thing. It's, it's literally like in the, like if you want to extreme, I, uh, make it extreme. It's literally like in the movie where the, 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 the character swaps body with another character. It's like your brain, your mind, your soul is screaming at you that you are something else and you look at yourself and you don't recognize yourself. So I think the problem is that when it comes to the trans issue, we are, we are projecting a variability in a, in, a, in a context where that variability actually flipped and it's, it's a much more drastic experience. And so we need to be mindful of not thinking with our own models about something that by definition just it breaks our, our models. And I love that because I, it's like God screwing with us. It's like, ah, so first you, you thought it was made in a female. And it's like, no, there's a lot of different kinds of female. And then it's like, ah, there's a lot of orientation. And ah, there is even this new thing of, and, and I could argue with you. So I think that's beautiful. And the argument is, do souls have gender? And if they do have a gender, how does it feel for a female soul to be in a male body. That's one way to also look at it. I don't think you could have such a, I mean, yeah, it gets into like, well, what is, you know, what's masculine, what's feminine, what's yin, what's yang, you know, is yin, is, is, is the subjective experience of yin the same thing as the subjective experience of being a woman? You know, those I things sort of strongly I, correlated. I, I, I think that just, the, I think the Let question, me, the, the, go ahead, go ahead. So, you know, in the, I happen to know, I know a number of, I have a number of trans friends and such. And um, I happen to know someone who is a type two. Okay. Who is, who is born a male, biological male. And but now lives as a woman. Mm -hmm. Okay. Type two is sort of the archetypal woman. It's the archetypal mother on the Enneagram. Okay. And then I know an eight. Okay. Who was born a woman. Okay. Um, and now now lives born a biological woman, now lives as a uh with a uh lives as a man. 
and it's like the eight, you know, I, I sort of like to call the eight, the balls of the Enneagram. It's like, <laughs> you know, they're dicks, right? They're fucking eights are fucking dicks. <laughs> And so um, it's like just being into this world as a male two or a female eight and coming across some of these uh, trending views on gender, they might be, they might mistakenly believe, you know? Like, whereas 20 years ago, they might just say, like, oh, I'm a no, I'm a female I, I eight. So cool. I'm a woman, but I have these personality characteristics that are more manly. I don't know. It just seems like no, I get it. I get it, it just seems like we're learning. We're learning to categorize, um, categorize our like if we don't if I'm a born a man and I don't fit the stereotype of what a man is. Well, that must mean I'm really a woman. So uh, there, there are various, it, it, it's a valid, it's, it's one of the most common arguments. I think that there are various issues. One is it still may fall a little bit in the projection thing, like something different may be going on in the subjective experience of the person. It's not just I don't fit. It's like I don't fit in my body rather than I don't fit in society. So that's one, one aspect which Don we discussed before. The other one is if you look at the statistics on left-handedness, Left-handedness had a, a sharp increase at some point in history. Was it a fashion? No. Simply, at some point, we stopped demonizing left-handedness. Like in Italy, at least you know, back in the days, they would tie the the left hand back behind your uh, back to train you to use your right hand because it was the hand of the devil, right? So when it became socially accepted. It's sort of like it became seen into the world and then it reached its sort of homeostatic balance with, with the rest. It kind of level, leveled off. So at this stage, it's very hard to tell, but it's also very likely that that... For, so this process for sure is part of what's happening. The question is just how much that is happening. So any assessment that we have of seeing this trend of seeing like, oh my God, there are so many women, so many trans women and stuff like that, is like, first of all, are we basing that on the discussion that we see or hard data? And even that hard data, is it a reflection of it becoming more acceptable or, or not? And the third argument is being trans sucks. Like, like, I don't think people often empathize enough with what a shit life it must be where like literally, I would say there are statistics, like the, 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 sec the amount of sexual assault of trans people, the amount of depression that they face, that they overcome once they transition, like it's, it's a shitty life in the given society. So if you think how it was hard for you to be a 16 year old, yeah, of course, when I was 16, I was weird. I was dressing weird, doing weird things, but like I wasn't actively searching for something that could threaten my life and make me hated by 70% of society. So my sense is that it is such a profound transformation that has so many negative consequences that the the the, the role the, the role that culture can play in pushing you towards that 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 difference is minimal. And it's also like think about homosexuality. Like 
most homosexual people would tell you that they didn't want to be homosexual. And the culture was pushing them towards being straight. And there was nothing they could do to, to go against the current of, of culture. So my sense is that when biology calls about these things, it's way more powerful than any cultural process. Um, do we need to be careful? Yes, of course. But I think we need to be careful listening to these people. Like, like the worst thing we can do is think for them. The best thing we can do is just listen to what they, they have to do because they're not stupid. It's like the Ukrainians. Like, they know what they're doing. They're not dumb. They're not like, they, they think with their own heads. The trans people are just the same. They're educated, intelligent people like you and I that think with their own heads. And yes, there are extremes, but the problem is that like extremes are what gets into the media. But then there's a whole lot of like reasonable people. It's like, it's like Muslims. In, in TV, you see the ones that shout Talaw Akbar and blow themselves up because they make the news, but that that's not the majority of Muslims. Same goes for trans people or people who are in favor of gender issues. All of this gets compounded by being green, which doesn't help, of course. So that, that it, you have the allergy of being compelled to do something. And by nature, we never want to do anything that we want to be compelled, especially loving people. We don't want to be forced to love people. And I think a lot of the, I think my question is always like, is our reaction to this idea product of these ideas not making sense, partly maybe, or partly of feeling that we're being compelled and forced and we just reject that. And I think, you know, once you kind of clear out all these, these different biases and things, the issue is still there. There are still problems, but it's like way reduced from what we make it up to. Uh, but again, I... I, I, I I studied sociology and like all the exams I did were on gender. So I have a, I have an inevitable bias. I come from Greenland. So I, I have, so I may not be unbiased in my assessment, but that's my analysis of, of the situation. There is a, there is a fantastic YouTuber called Dark Natalie. And she is just like, just listen to her. That, that's my advice. Like she knows she has, the eloquence to explain these issues. Uh, her YouTube is called ContraPoints. I know, yeah, I know, yeah, ContraPoints. She has one about J.K. Rowling, and I think in the view, in the video about J.K. Rowling, she really kind of takes every single one of these issues uh, apart. And she's, she also does some videos where she takes the different perspectives of different people on the matter, kind of honoring the different views and um, it's fantastic. But I think it could be summarized as God loves to screw with us. And we will throw at us as much weirdness and difference and <laughs> unexpected stuff that it can so that we don't just get too comfortable. And uh, that's the trans people. Their blessing is that they get to show us that life doesn't give a shit about what we expect it to be. And that's uh, it's great. Fair enough, man. God likes to fuck with us. Yes. <laughs> in, a, in a playful and loving way. Right. And slightly sadistic. No, just kidding. Slightly sadistic. Just, just a little bit. Yeah. All right, man. Well, this has awesome. been like a fucking thrill and a half. I loved every minute of it. And yeah, me too. Finally, man. we had a chat. We never actually we, we chatted on Messenger for years, but we never actually talked. So 
I know we finally did it and it's getting uh, (laughs) recorded and captured and it'll be on the interweb for eternity. Awesome. Awesome. (laughs) As long as the internet exists. And until Skynet comes, but we'll be fine. Oh yeah. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Damiano. Until next time, my friend. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.